0: We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. Above everything else, joy is the distinctive mark of the Christian life. Whatever else it may be, the Christian life, it's a life of joy. That's what we learn from these three passages of Scripture that were just read to us. Now, you should be thinking, hold on now. Life is not always joyful. There are times when it's anything but joyful. And and what exactly does the word joy mean when, when we hear it read in these passages? And when we hear passages describing the Christian life as fundamentally, essentially, characterized by joy. Well, let's look at these three passages that Grace Ann and Sarah Coleman and Stephen just read. Let's start with Philippians chapter 4, the passage that Stephen read to us. Now, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to find it or to use the one in the pew. And as you're doing that, I want to give you just a little bit of background. Philippians is a letter of friendship that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians who lived in the city of Philippi. Now, Paul, when he wrote this letter, he was in Rome, 800 miles from Philippi, and it was in the early 60s AD, so the first century after the birth of Christ. Paul had gone to Philippi, In 49 A.D., so a little over a decade before he wrote this letter, Paul had gone to Philippi as a missionary to bring the gospel, and he was the first Christian to bring the gospel to Philippi. And when he did, a church gets started. We don't know how long Paul stayed in the city, but we do know why he left. Okay? He left because he and Silas, and they'd gone to Philippi to share the gospel. And they encountered this young slave girl who was demon-possessed. And apparently this kind of demonic bondage she was in somehow gave her these abilities that her owners kind of pimped her out as a fortune teller. So if if you've seen the movie Slumdog Millionaire, you can imagine this kind of setting where street children are gathered up by these malicious people who then use them To get money. This kind of saying. That's exactly what's going on in Philippi. Well, this girl started agitating Paul and Silas. And finally, they got tired of her. After days and days, she would follow behind them as they go to their prayer meeting. And she would mock them. And finally, they got tired of her. And they turned around. And they rebuked the demon. And they cast the demon out of this girl. Well, the problem was it ended her ability as a fortune teller which means her owners got very upset because their profit margin was cut into. So they incited a mob. The mob attacked Paul and Silas. The government gets involved and arrest Paul and Silas for disturbing the peace. (laughs) And then the government beats Paul and Silas, throws them in jail. And then after a while, they figure out we don't really have good legal grounds to have them in jail. So they let them out and ran them out of town. That's why Paul and Silas left Philippi. Okay, so that was a little over eleven years before this letter was written. Now, the reason I tell you that is as you read the book of Philippi- the letter of Philippians, you need to know that the church was started in the context of hostility and persecution. When we look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, we get we get a feel for this. Philippians 1, 27. Paul is writing. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Over a decade later, apparently the hostility, the persecution, the opposition has continued because this is Paul. He's writing sort of like a father and he's saying, no, I. I hope that when I get news of you, you're standing firm, even in the face of this opposition, this persecution, which resulted in my beating, my imprisonment, my being run out of town. You're still facing that. And he goes on. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation in that that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, I'm sure we could have a a lot of sermons and discussions and teachings about the whole concept that suffering could be a gift. But here we see that this is a group of Christians who first embraced the gospel in the context of hostility and persecution and opposition and suffering. And it's gone on for a decade. Now, the Christians in Philippi are suffering, but they're not suffering only because of persecution, In fact, we know that they're suffering in other ways because about seven years after Paul first went to Philippi, so he went there in 49 AD, in 56 AD, he comes back for another visit and he writes a letter to Christians who live in another city, the city of Corinth. And in this letter to the Christians in Corinth, while he's in Philippi, seven years later for a visit, he describes what life is like for the Philippians. And this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You don't have to turn there. If you take notes, you can write it. I'm going to read just a few phrases to you. 2 Corinthians 8. Paul writes, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, Philippi was a Roman outpost in the interior plain of Macedonia. So he's talking about the Philippian Christians. And listen how he describes their life. For a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, I cannot imagine what level of poverty it took in the first century for a a well-traveled person to describe poverty as extreme. But whatever level of poverty that is, That's what the Philippians were going through. And he said, they've got so much grace in their life. In their abject poverty, they have generously given money to Christians in other cities who are suffering. So here, all I'm trying to show you is that from the letter of Philippians and from the letter of 2 Corinthians, we learn that the Philippian Christians are going through an, an over a decade long struggle against hostility and suffering of poverty. Now, one more piece of information that I think is necessary as you and I try to listen together for the voice of God to us and to our church through this letter. And it's this. Paul, who wrote this letter to the Philippians, he's not in Philippi. He's not facing their persecution. He's not going through their poverty. He's in Rome. But he's not safely ensconced in some hotel You know, living the high life, eating bonbons and watching Oprah. Because in Philippians chapter 1 verse 12, listen to how Paul describes his own current state of affairs. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for the gospel. So do you understand who's a man in prison? He was in prison, we know, for two years, and we're pretty sure he wrote this letter toward the end of his imprisonment, okay? So he's at the end of an almost two-year arrest, and he's writing a letter to a group of people who've been going through persecution for a decade and extreme poverty. Here we have Paul imprisoned and suffering, writing to a church that is, Suffering. And what does he say in Philippians 4 4? Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Joy. Unmitigated, untrammeled joy. He's saying, in the midst of my suffering and in the midst of your suffering, joy. Not because we like to suffer, but because our joy is in the Lord. He's not talking about a feeling. He's talking about an activity. Rejoice. That's something you do. It's not something you feel. It's an action. It is a moral obligation on behalf of a Christian. It's a command. It's an imperative in the original Greek. Rejoice. And he uses a form of of the verb that means you continually and habitually rejoice. It's a present imperative. It's the idea of a constant, continual, doing it so frequently in the midst of abject poverty, in the midst of hostility, in the face of your oppressors. You do it so much that it becomes a habit. That when I push you, what comes out of you is rejoice. And when you can't eat, what comes out of you is the moral activity of rejoicing. This is huge. I mean, this is really astounding. Continually give voice, physical voice to joy. Continually and habitually vocalize your joy in songs and words Do this so often. Do it when you wake up in the morning and do it in the middle of the day and do it before you go to sleep. Vocalize in song and word joy. That's a command from one prisoner to another. From one sufferer to another. And for the Christians in Philippi and Paul himself, Not to just beat a dead horse, but we've got to let this sink in. It includes when you're suffering at the hands of your enemies, you rejoice. Why? Because joy is the distinctive mark of the Christian life. The mark of the Christian life is not success. It is not money. It wasn't for the Philippians, and it's not for most Christians in this world today. The average Christian in the world today is a very poor woman with lots of children living in abject poverty in slums in Africa. If you take all of the Christians in the world today and you average all the people in the the situations out, that's the average. And it's one of those people writing to another of those people saying, rejoice. We should be shamed. Now look at verse 5. Philippians chapter 4 verse 5. Paul goes on. He has another imperative. Another command. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. It's a word literally that describes, get this, a person who is humble and patient when they are being treated. With injustice and disgrace and hatred and malice. A a better translation, I think, of the word is gentle. That in the face of suffering, malice, injustice and hatred, your response is gentleness. When you're mistreated. When you're shamed and disgraced. You respond with gentleness. Now, this is a command from one sufferer unjustly being treated, one guy in prison arrested and he should not be, to another group of people who are going through something that they should not be going through. This is well beyond the policeman pulling you over when you really were not speeding, saying, let your response in the face of hostility be gentleness. Gentleness. He's saying that, that, look, as Christians, you should have two kind of dominating external responses. Rejoicing and gentleness. And suddenly, we're told why. A Christian is so distinctly marked. By This deep and profound joy that comes out of them like a geyser, like old faithful, into two forms. The form of rejoicing and the, to- the form of gentleness. The reason? The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. That's what he says in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That's the causal statement. That's the reason Why? Because the Lord is near. Now, there are two ways that the Lord is near. First of all, the Lord is near in the sense that he's going to return physically to this earth. And that's going to happen soon. The coming of the Lord is near. Now, that's part of what this Advent season is about. That's why these passages were picked for this time of the year. You and I, we are preparing and we are waiting and we are longing and expecting Christ to come back to this earth and to finish his work, to put evil and death to death, finally and forever, to remove forever all the powers of evil that enslave us and imprison us like that little slave girl in Philippi. And in the, in the way we get imprisoned and enslaved today. Christ is coming back to end corruption and destruction to make everything new again. And because that is going to happen, we should rejoice. That, that, that's a source. Paul says rejoice and be gentle because God's going to take care of it. He's coming back. That should produce, as you go through the season and you meditate on that and you think about that and you let that grab a hold of your imagination, it should become like a geyser inside of you welling up in rejoicing and gentleness in the face of our enemies, in the grip of suffering, in the midst of pain and loneliness and grief and tragedy. We rejoice because we've read the end of the story. We know that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. All of that will be gone. And as we think about that, this season is... See, this is the problem with pushing Christmas into these four weeks because you stop thinking about that. You stop thinking that he's coming back and he's going to end all of this pain. And when you don't have time to think about that, you don't have time to... To fan into flame this source of joy, this, this, this motivation for rejoicing, and this motivation ultimately to respond to all of your oppressors with gentleness. Do you hear what God is teaching us through Paul? Through Paul, who is suffering as he writes this, he is suffering deeply. As he writes this to Philippians who are suffering deeply, he is showing us that joy is the distinctive mark of the Christian life. Because even in the face of suffering, and even in a world of assassinations and corrupt politicians, and even in a city where four innocent girls are randomly murdered in the midst of the civil rights movement and in the face of hurricanes and tornadoes that demolish families and car wrecks and illnesses and a policeman at a routine traffic stop being killed in the face of every imaginable pain. We know that Christ is coming back and he's going to bring justice. He's going to make it all right again. And that is the source of our joy. And that is the power that gives us a confidence to be gentle. In the face of mistreatment. And when that grips our heart and our imagination, joy comes out of us and gentleness comes out of us because we trust that God will take care. He will take care of us and he will take care of our enemies. He will bring justice and he will make all things new. That's the first thing that Paul is getting at when he says the Lord is at hand. But he means something more. That's not all he means. He also means the Lord is at hand, not only in terms of chronology, like he's coming back soon time. He also means it spatially. He also means it in a physical sense. He's saying to the Philippians, you feel like when you're you're staring down the face of your oppressor, That that is all that is in front of you, but it's not. Christ is near in that moment. In that moment, by the power of the spirit, God is near to you. Now, this gets into something we've talked about before. It gets into cosmology. It gets into the Hebrew view of the way the universe is kind of put together. Now, we've talked about this. Remember, for the Jewish people of the Old Testament, and Paul was a devout Jew. The location of heaven and earth, it wasn't in terms of geography. Heaven and earth are not two different places in the universe. Earth here and heaven out there, you know, past Pluto somewhere. For Paul and throughout the Bible, heaven and earth are two dimensions of the same reality. Not locations, dimensions. Heaven is the dimension where God is visibly present and earth. This is our dimension. Now, we've talked about this before. I I bring it up again because I think um, reading the scriptures is more like learning French. It's about repetition than it is like, you know, experimental physics or something. I bring it up again because I know it's a mind trip to have a kind of a change of perspective. Think think of it like the weight and the substance of an object there are two aspects of this, of the same thing, that heaven and earth are two aspects of the same reality, that heaven and earth are really overlapping and interlocking. So this morning when I woke up and before I opened my eyes, the first thing I did was I prayed our father who aren't in heaven. And I was reminded that that means. That God is near to me right now. My father who is in heaven, I can't see you, but this is an overlapping, interlocking dimension of this reality. My father who is near, right? See, that's why Paul can say rejoice and be gentle because Christ is near. And once you catch a glimpse of what's going on in the Bible with heaven and earth, then you're ready to feel the power. Of this. this is why Christ is near sits at the heart of Philippians 4, 4 through 7 and of these commands. Because once you understand what it means to say that he's coming back soon. And once you understand that he is near right now, then all of a sudden you can see why even in the midst of suffering from one sufferer to another, there can be a command given rejoice in the Lord and another command given let your gentleness be known to everyone. Why? Because the Lord is near. And now we go on in verse 6. Here's another command that comes out of that. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. See, Paul is saying Christians do not live with anxiety. Why? Why? Because we safely entrust our life to God with prayer and thanksgiving. Why? Because He's near. Because He's coming back. He will make everything right. He is so near that when I woke up this morning, before I even opened my eyes, He knew the burdens, He knew the, the anxieties that were attacking my heart. And He's near. And he cares and he knows right now while I'm suffering, he's near. While I'm being mistreated, he's near. While I'm being abused, he's near. While I'm in poverty, he's near. When I'm confused and rejected, my father knows he is near and he cares. Anxiety, fear, these are the things that mark the life of those who do not trust that God is near and that God cares. It's the reason the great 20th century theologian Karl Barth was able to say that the Christian joy is a defiant nevertheless in the face of whatever circumstances you're in. Christians who know that God is close and that he is coming back. We can take everything to God in prayer. Look, Paul has kind of this wordplay. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, we all the details, all the circumstances of my Something doesn't have to measure up on the scale of bigness in order to qualify it for being brought to God. Why? Because he's near and he knows every little bitty thing. It's not like he's way off in space and all he can see is, you know, the Great Wall of China or something. All he can see is the big stuff in my life. No, he's near. And because he's near, he sees the little stuff in my life. He sees all the stuff in my life. That's why I don't have to be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer, I can bring this all the details, all the circumstances. When when other people are filled with fear and worry, the Christian can submit his or her case to God in prayer. Accompanied by Thanksgiving. You see, Paul could not imagine a Christian life that was not a constant outpouring of gratitude to God. In fact, In another one of his letters, a letter that he wrote to the Romans, he's in Romans writing this, but there's another time when he wasn't in Rome and he was writing to the Romans, where he says that the lack of gratitude is the first step to idolatry. It's one of the problems for teenagers. Teenagers, you're growing up in a culture that says adolescence, it programs you to stop being grateful. And that is the first step. Toward idolatry and godlessness. That's what Paul says in Romans 121. Thanksgiving is the basic posture of the Christian before God. Whatever we're bringing to him, our basic approach to him is gratitude and thankfulness. It's the recognition that everything comes as a gift from God. Now, this is the opposite of Ayn Rand and Atlas Shrugged. This is the opposite of a kind of bootstrap mentality that fills this culture we live in. This attitude that you can make it on your own. No, Christian gratitude cuts that view right out from under you because it is the explicit acknowledgement that we are completely dependent on God. And this leads us to verse seven. It leads us. Right to verse seven. You see, by the time you get to verse seven, if you have your imagination and your thought and your whole life focused on the nearness of Christ, both right now as a a reality and in terms of his return, once that grips your imagination, you can rejoice like Paul commands you to rejoice. You can verbalize your great joy. Nevertheless, your circumstances. You can be gentle with everyone, even your persecutors. You can resist anxiety by taking everything to God in prayer with thanksgiving. And you know what God will do in return? In return to you obeying those three commands, the command to rejoice, the command to be gentle, the command to not worry, but instead bring him. You know what God will do in return? He will guard your heart and your mind with peace. That's Verse seven. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, makes no sense why a sufferer writing to another sufferer can talk about the peace of God. But it blows our circuits. It will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is God's alternative to anxiety. Our circumstances may not change. We might not figure it all out. But God's peace will be like an army garrison. Camped around our heart. Fighting off anxiety. Fighting off fear. Fighting off worry. In the midst. Of an economic downturn. In the midst of persecution. But remember the key to all of this. The Lord. Is near. Right now. He's near so as you and I prepare to celebrate the birth of Christ, the coming of God into human flesh to deliver us from our greatest enemies, from fear, from death, from evil. As we prepare to celebrate this, we are reminded that his return is as sure of a fact as his first coming. And so we can hear the word of God speaking to us through the prophets Zephaniah and Isaiah, comforting us, instructing us to rejoice. Turn with me to this passage that Sarah Coleman read, Zephaniah chapter 3. We're just going to listen to them now in the context of what Paul has taught us. Zephaniah chapter 3, one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Bible. Thanks, Sarah Coleman. Of reading it. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. That's you, by the way. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you, He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is near, He is in your Midst. What, what was the name that we learned for Jesus in Matthew? Emmanuel? What does it mean? God is with us. The Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. And so we see Paul in a prison cell or under arrest being able to write to sufferers with joy. His hand has not grown weak. The Lord is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Can you see the Lord over Paul as he's under arrest? And the Lord rejoicing over him. Can you see that no matter what suffering you're going through, the Lord over you, rejoicing over you, he will quiet you by his love. That's good, isn't it? He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame. Now, here we're beginning. We're beginning to get glimpses, kind of like a dream where you kind of see it, but you can't really see it like seeing something in a fog where Zephaniah is projecting. And he's he's got a glimpse in the fog of what it's going to be like when Christ returns. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame. Into praise. Perhaps you have to be handicapped to know the joy behind that phrase. I will change their shame into praise. And renown in all the earth at that time, I will bring you in at that time when i gather you together i will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when i restore your fortunes before your eyes says the lord sandy porter told me that she listens to the messiah all advent long trying to get herself so i so i went and bought it online 9.99 you know the whole 4 hour did you know it was that long it's 4 hours and there's this song rejoice 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 greatly it's just been echoing this is why When you begin to to really sink yourself into the coming of Christ as a babe in the manger and that he's coming again, it begins to well up in you. Now go to Isaiah chapter 12 and let's listen to this passage of Scripture that we heard read just a few minutes ago. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust God And will not be afraid. Can you tell that Paul had been immersing himself in these kinds of passages? This is what enabled Paul to write what he wrote. And it is what will enable you, if you give yourself to Advent, if you meditate on these passages, you too will be able to write a letter from prison like Paul wrote. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Listen, this is the word of the Lord to us tonight. God is saying to us, shout and sing for joy. Why? Because God is in your midst. Oh, church. I want to challenge you. We're just past the halfway mark of Advent. Take time every day to read the scriptures, to, to get yourself in the practice of the spiritual disciplines so that you can take time to repent, so that you can meditate on this coming of Christ, so that you will become the kind of person that when you are pushed and persecuted, the habitual response is rejoicing and gentleness. See, we need to become the kind of people for whom that is our gut response to hostility. Because you're shaped by the very real presence of Christ in your midst and shaped by the very real fact. He's coming back. And everything will be made new. And you see, when that begins to play out in your life, joy will be the distinctive mark of your life, whatever the circumstance. Let's pray. Father, for your word, we give you great thanks. And we ask your help. That you would help us, Father, to obey you by rejoicing and being gentle. That you would help us, Father, to become the kind of people who can obey you by really meditating on your nearness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.